everybody. It's lovely to see you all. Uh, for our second of two sessions with um, Tim Dalgleish, who's really kindly agreed to do a follow-up session to one that we had at the beginning of October. Um, and we'll say a little bit more about what this is all about. So some of you maybe were here for the session in October. Um, uh, some of you maybe weren't. So Tim will will introduce the session and explain a little bit about the background. Um, and then this is very much intended as a, a questions and answers and discussion session. But before we do that, I can see some of you are doing it already. Please do feel free to put into chat where you are in the world. Uh, so we get this sense of international community coming together. Um, and then we'll do a very brief practice to begin with. And then I will introduce Tim. But um, yeah, just mentioning where you are will be lovely. I can see that we've got 75 people here at the moment from all over the world. Great. <laughs> Uh, all over the UK, Hungary, Bucharest, Belgium, sunny West Oxfordshire. You're very lucky, James, to have sun there. It's quite windy and stormy here in Suffolk. Ah, oh, and the Philharmonic Hall in Liverpool. I know it well, Julian. Lovely. Cornwall, Dublin. South Africa, wind, wet and windy North Devon, yeah. Cotswolds, Nottingham, Buckinghamshire, Budapest, Kosovo, Bristol, Germany, Linda from Norfolk, just over the border from where I am. So really lovely to see you all. Ah, Greece. So please do carry on um, adding in where you are if you'd like to. And, and perhaps let's let's just begin with a very brief arrival practice, if you like. Let's arrive. Uh, and I'm a great um, fan of making our settling into a position as much part of the practice as the practice itself. So if you're noticing for those of you who've maybe done some mindfulness practice before, this automatic pilot that we, we go into of, of just, ah, oh, right, practice, and I'll just land in a particular position that I'm used to, or the body kind of just goes through the motions. So really making this a choice, making arriving and settling the body a choice. And depending on what's gone before, that might be standing. You might decide that the the most supportive thing for you to do right now is to stand or to sit. And if you're sitting, maybe choosing where you sit. Maybe you move chair, maybe you maybe you do a bit of a habit breaker and you move to a different position to where you might normally sit. There's a sense of wakefulness in this, this choice making waking up a little as we choose where to sit or stand. 
and then settling. So you may know what that's like if you've if you've done some mindfulness practice before. So choosing a way to settle that might be identifying an anchor in the body, somewhere that feels steady, grounded. And if you're new to mindfulness or have perhaps not done quite so much, here we're really noticing where in the body feels most resourcing, a place where attention can rest for a little while. So you might be noticing a sense of steadiness as the, as the feet come into contact with the ground. a sense of the weight of the legs, gravity acting on those legs. Or if you're sitting, a sense of the body in contact with the seat, whatever you're sitting on. Maybe sensations of sit bones coming into contact with the seat or the ground. Maybe a broader sensation, distribution of contact. Maybe a sense of the weight of the hands resting on the legs or in the lap. sense of aliveness in the hands. So many nerve endings here and just a, sometimes a sense of tingling or aliveness. Or maybe a sense of the body breathing. Noticing where this is showing up most clearly for you, maybe in the belly, the chest, maybe a sense of expanding and then releasing. So expanding as the breath comes in and then a releasing or relaxing as the breath goes out. Or maybe that sensation of breathing is showing up as air moving through the nostrils. Cooler air coming in on the in-breath. And warmer air moving out on the out-breath. Or maybe a sense of a, a column of air. So as you're breathing in, the air moving through the nostrils and the throat, right the way down through the body. So filling the lungs and the belly. 
nourishing the body. And then a sense of release or letting go on the out-breath. Spending a few moments now really exploring with interest where this sense of anchor or steadiness is showing up for you. And it may be that there's no particular place. Maybe there's no one place in the body that feels more steady than another, in which case, just seeing which one feels okay, a sense of okayness. Sensations that feel kind of steady. And knowing that this place is available at any point, should you choose to return to it. Maybe in moments of busyness or distractedness. The mind wanders. You recognize, notice where it's gone. It's recognizing that the mind wanders for a good reason. Very often it's to keep us safe, to be aware of our environment. So in recognizing where it's gone, also a sense of kindness or even appreciation. As you then gently guide it back to wherever feels most steady or steady enough in the body. And then as we bring this practice to a close, just allowing the eyes to very slowly open if they've been closed. Noticing if the body needs to move, maybe a stretching or a wriggling or a shaking. Whatever you need to do now, having sat still for a few moments. And again, a big welcome to you all. So um, my name is Claire Kelly. Uh, I work for the Oxford Mindfulness Foundation and I'm in the, the very lucky position to be able to introduce Tim this evening. Um, 
Tim has lots of roles, <laughs> and I'm going to try and encapsulate some of them. Um, but perhaps most relevant for tonight is, is that he is based at the University of Cambridge at the MRC Cognitive and Brain Sciences Unit. Um, and, and if you haven't heard of that before, it's a research centre for advancing our knowledge of human cognition, um, and they cover programmes from childhood development, mental health, ageing, dementia, neurological and sensory disorders, um, and, and fundamental cognitive neuroscience. So he's programme leader for the Cognitive and Brain Science Unit, um, has done huge amounts of research in, in these areas. Um, but specifically this evening was one of a, a, a group of um, very experienced researchers and scientists um, working on the Myriad project. So some of you I know will have heard of Myriad. Um, some of you maybe have not heard of Myriad. So um, I'm going to hand over now to Tim, who's going to just do a brief introduction just to remind us, or for those of us who weren't here last time, about what this project's all about. And then um, we're going to open up for questions. And the most effective way to do this will be through posting your questions into the chat, if that feels okay. There might be points where we invite someone to speak out. Um, but if you do have specific questions, then feel free to put them in chat and I will collate those. Um, so I'm going to hand over now to you, Tim, if that's OK, um, to give us a little bit of background to what this is all about, this Myriad project. Thanks uh, very much, Claire, and thanks for inviting me back. So I was here a few weeks ago um, and I talked for a lot longer than 35, 40 minutes about the Myriad project. Um, and there wasn't so much time then for questions, so uh, I was asked if I would come back, which I'm delighted to do, in case anyone had any questions. It doesn't matter if you don't, but it's an opportunity if you do. But I thought maybe not everyone um, can remember even what happened last week, let alone four weeks ago, so I could give a brief summary uh, to start with, just a few minutes. So. Um, <clears throat> So the Myriad project was a, lar a large project funded by Wellcome, uh, uh, a large charity that funds mental health research amongst other things. And it involved 28,000 young people, adolescents, 100 schools, 650 teachers, and took seven years. So it was a really big endeavor. Um, and it was inspired by concerns about the increasing prevalence of youth mental health problems and the need to move from a reactive sort of treatment model with very limited resources to deal with these issues to a prevention approach. Let's try and um, prevent these problems from arising in the first place rather than dealing with the fallout when they, when they become entrenched. And we wanted to look at possible interventions that could be offered to all young adolescents in school settings. Um, so not screening people, whether they're at risk or anything like that, something that could be delivered to everybody. And that really limited the number of uh, interventions available to us because many of them are actually predicated on there being existing mental health problems. So we settled on <coughs> studying mindfulness training because that 
we realize there's the potential to benefit everybody, not just people with difficulties, but even people who are flourishing because of its focus on improving mental regulation, uh, affective control, self-awareness and so on. So the question we had really for the project was, has mindfulness training delivered to all adolescents of what you therefore call universal intervention in schools, the potential to move the adolescent population away from psychological problems and towards mental health by addressing these key processes of mental regulation and executive control that we think operate across the whole risk, whole spectrum from risk right through to resilience and flourishing. So that was our question. So the main study we did to address that was what's called a, a randomized control trial. So we took 84 schools and for half of them, we uh, took naive teachers and trained them in a mindfulness for schools intervention dot B um, over, over an, an extensive uh, training period. And for the other half, we uh, left, left them to do um, normal PSHE lessons, but we had the stipulation that the PSHE at all the schools had to be um, a, a, an Ofsted level of good. So, um, it, so they they all, they're all living good enough PSHE. So the question then became, by introducing the mindfulness training into half of these schools, so into a, so that's for about 4,000 young people, um, will those 4,000 young people show decreased signs that their risk for mental health problems has been reduced because of the mindfulness training compared to the 4,000 or so young people who are just getting the usual PSHE? So that the young people in the mindfulness schools would also be getting the PSHE, so adding mindfulness on top, if you like. Um, so we used the dot B intervention, a universal intervention, so we didn't recruit young people who just wanted to take part, we, we, we made sure that everybody within a cohort received the intervention. And <clears throat> we trained teachers from, from, from scratch, and we offered 10 sessions of mindfulness with follow-up booster sessions over the, the next year. And our key question was then on three indicators of risk for mental health, do we see changes one year after the mindfulness intervention is finished? Um, and those were those three indicators were your risk for developing depression, um, your social and emotional and behavioral functioning more generally, and your sense of well-being. Um, and the, 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 the main finding that we have was that we found no support for mindfulness improved um, or decreased risk for mental health problems on these three measures a year later. Um, we had a, a bunch of what are called secondary outcomes. Um, so those were the, what we would call the primary outcomes, which we, we were really designed to look at. And the secondary outcomes was a list of other possible things we might be interested in. Um, and in fact, there we didn't find any support by influence benefited any of our secondary outcomes. In fact, on four of them, my, my people who received my influence were worse off, um, including their understanding and knowledge of mindfulness. I'm not nodding a lot than, the, uh, than the, the people who didn't receive mindfulness. The, the, the finding on mindfulness is not uncommon in mindfulness research because if 
you start out in mindfulness, as I'm sure everyone here knows, then you understand it. And then once you've been practicing for a while, you realize how little you really understand what you're doing. So that, that's not an uncommon finding, but we didn't find any support. We also looked at how the teachers were doing, and we found that the teachers who'd been trained in mindfulness immediately after the training um, were doing a bit better. But when we, when we went, checked back in with them a year later, those effects had also disappeared. So there were no sustained benefits for teachers. The one sustained benefit we found was on school climate, um, as rated by the teachers. So the, the, they, they said that the schools within which mindfulness had been introduced, there was a more respectful and a more considered school climate relative to the schools where it hadn't been introduced. And in fact, we've just looked at data another year later, so two years on now, and that effect remains. Um, so that was our trial. It was 8,370 young people. But lots of people are, are, are exploring the same question. In fact, um, when we did a systematic review to accompany our trial, we found there were 66 randomized controlled trials of mindfulness in schools, not all of them universal, some of them indicated, so only targeted at young people at risk or young people who volunteered. But that, that gave us in total something like 20,000 young people who'd taken part in trials around the world. And there, when we examined all of those data together, although we found some benefits immediately after the mindfulness intervention, we found no evidence across all 66 trials of sustained benefits follow-up. So some of those follow-ups were three months, six months, some were a year like we did, but no sustained effects. So it's not just our trial that's, that's struggling to find a signal of impact. And the final bit of work we did was um, what we, we called a mechanisms trial. So this was on about 460 young people where we had lots of measures of our, what we thought was the key mechanism of mindfulness, this improvement in mental regulation. So you can measure that by asking people, but it's much better if you actually give them experimental tasks that they do on computers that really require them to have good mental regulation. So uh, we had a whole bunch of these tasks. So that, and here the, the mindfulness teachers were, were experienced teachers and the young people were very engaged. Um, because we paid them for every session of mindfulness, unlike in the school, really, where it was part of their normal lessons. Um, but we found no evidence of mindfulness changing any of our mechanisms measures at all, Some, something like 10 different measures. Um, so I, I think we're obviously very disappointed in these results, but I think the main conclusion really is not that mindfulness in schools doesn't work, but that if you were to roll it out as a UK policy where you would have to, you know, deliver it in a normal school environment, you'd have to train teachers from scratch because there just aren't enough experienced teachers already, then you're going to struggle to get an intervention that makes an impact. Um, and we found a lot of the problem was very low engagement from the students. They'd obviously attend the lessons because the lessons were essentially compulsory because they're part of their normal curriculum. But they did very little of the home practice and they, they were sort of somewhat lukewarm about the intervention. Whereas, of course, if you were to have more experienced teachers, that might be different. Or 
if you just worked with young people for whom this was something that they actually wanted to do as opposed to being essentially conscripted to do, you'd get very different, different results. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, and I'm happy to answer any questions, but I'm also, you know, as Claire said, a clinical psychologist and mental health researcher. So I'm happy to answer questions on any, anything about mental health research, um, mental health, anything like that, really, um, because that's what I do. But this, this is the project that I spoke about a few weeks ago. Thanks so much, Tim. So we're going to invite you just to put any questions you have into chat for Tim. And maybe while you're doing that, um, I've just I've got some of the questions that were left over from the last session, Tim. And one is, I think you've almost answered it in a way, which is um, there's a sense that 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 previous research using involving adults and mindfulness has seemingly there's been some fairly consistent, significant results in terms of benefits. So what is it that was different <laughs> about doing this with young people? And I know that you just mentioned that the scale of rollout. So presumably that's one factor. But have you got a sense of why we would have these results with young people and yet, you know, slightly different sense of, of outcomes for adults? That's a really good question. So I think that there's various things to say. There's, there's obviously different applications in different contexts in which mindfulness is offered. So the, the, the strongest findings, I think, are in a mental health context as a prevention of depression. So there, what you've got is a nice recommended intervention, which is available if you're in the right postcode in the NHS. And it, but, but the evidence there is people who've had three or more previous episodes of clinical depression will benefit in terms of reduced likelihood of relapse or recurrence to future episodes if they take they have mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So that's a, that's a very different approach. And, and actually, if you haven't got sort of mental health difficulties that you can work with during the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, there's, there's much less indication that it's helpful. And then of course, there are mindfulness courses offered to adults in many settings but nearly always these are there's not the same conscription element you don't just get adults and say you will come along and do your mindfulness training whether you like it or not so that's a really big difference um so we're just actually finishing a big systematic review of mindfulness in the workplace where it's not quite conscription but it's a little bit closer to it than um the sort of non-clinical settings where you know, people such as some people here may have gone and done mindfulness training because they're really interested in it. Um, um, so we'll find out from the trials that have looked at mindfulness in the workplace um, how, how that's how that's going. But it's a bit different there because a lot of the outcomes are things like you know, increased attendance at work, increased productivity. I, mean, I think I think often these programs are offered by employers. To tick the box that they care about the well-being of their uh, employees and to also see if they can get some benefits like you know harder working employees or more engaged employees. so again there's no real straight comparison so that's one issue i think the other is of course developmental it may be that um 
you know that, that it's it's there's a greater proportion of young people who just want, who just find it hard to engage in this kind of thing um and uh, we certainly found that engagement was quite was quite low and i know that you know when you offer mindfulness programs to to young people um and you're not sort of conscripting them there's really good engagement so it's not like everybody's not engaged but i think once you once you you know, essentially your school comes along and says, this is, this is three o'clock on a Tuesday, it's mindfulness time now, and you, you know, you've had no say in the matter, then I think it's a bit of a different question. Thank you. Thanks for that. And having, you know, my early career was in teaching, so I know very well, if an adult says to a teenager, do this at this time, <laughs> chances are they'll be going, I'll, I'll turn up, but <laughs> not necessarily. Yeah, well, I we had an unfortunate, an, an interesting incident in the kitchen about halfway through the trial when one of the other PI's sons was um, just looking at his plan of the day. And in their school, they were doing mindfulness, nothing to do with the trial. And he was like, oh, God, not mindfulness again. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of worried us too. They go, yeah, well, that might be part of the problem. There was just a sort of dislike really and I think and that might be because you know the teaching's not so great or just that it requires or, or it could just be that anything that you're told to do rather than choose to do it's a bit of an issue yes. or I, I, you know, but it was it was quite it was a bit of a moment really. yeah yeah conscripts rather than volunteers aren't they yeah yeah so there's lot there's lots of questions coming in thick and fast um Oh, where should I start? So, um, so there's the first question we had. I wonder if you adapted the mindfulness training in your study to the particular needs of the young people. And I'm wondering if that, I don't know, Martin, is this something you'd be happy to kind of explain a little bit more in terms of what you mean by the needs of young people? Yes, uh, good evening. Uh, hello, Tim. Um, I guess behind my question, there's two things really. One is that clearly there are different mindfulness practices. So therefore I wonder whether there is any choice about, for example, sitting practice, um, body uh, mindfulness, those kinds of things, whether there is any kind of particular focus on the type of mindfulness. But I'm also thinking that, thinking that you were offering this to adolescents that adolescents clearly have issues, don't they, about self-image, um, about kind of responding to things, about needing to be drawn in. So I just wonder whether there was any sort of tailoring of your approach in terms of what kind of what kind of thing they were being offered and whether there was any adaption thinking about the actual target audience. Yeah, I hope that's clear. That's, really, that's a really good question. So our view was if we're going to do this, we need to have a mindfulness program that's already established, that's been developed not by you know clinical psychologists like us, but developed by teachers in collaboration with young people. And there's you know an excellent program, mindfulness in schools, which is a ten-week curriculum, which has very lots of very different exercises, so lots of variety, but also a lot of psychoeducation and home practice, and which we'd actually already you know, established good um, impact in a, in a pilot trial on, uh, before, before we did this big study. So we didn't, we deliberately wanted a, a really 
good program that's already out there that's entirely tailored for young people developed by people who work in schools rather than people who think they know better and just just bring it in from outside um and if anyone's not familiar with that program i, I really recommend going to the mindfulness in schools website it's a really it's a really lovely set of materials so that's what we used thanks tim and in fact um I think Richard Burnett is here, who's who's one of the co-founders of Mindfulness in Schools Project. And at the moment, we're talking about maybe having a separate session where they can talk about, you know, what mindfulness for young people might look like moving forward and certainly the learning that's emerged out of the myriad results as well. So just letting you know, watch this space. We'll let you know more about that um, nearer the time. So there's, a, there's another question here, which um, so this is from Ollie. Two-part question. So first of all, with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything you would do differently from a study design perspective? Um, and what are the next steps for the study in terms of this topic? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think, you know, I mean, it feels like a long time ago, 2015, I guess a lot's happened in the world. But I suppose I'm sceptical now and about whether you, any universal attempt at change in young people or maybe in anybody is going to be successful even if it was something much more pedagogic like maths training we know that you know that has very different impacts on 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 adolescence um anything where you're learning for the first time and you're trying to change a whole population i'm wondering if it if it would really benefit so i think that's one question about universal interventions per se and that has bigger ramifications for the whole PSHE approach. Um, I think another thought would be it would be much better to have something actually delivered by young people, maybe older youth in the school, sixth formers or whatever, because I think engagement is absolutely critical. And I think there's all you, you already got one hand tied behind your back if you're a teacher trying to engage young people about stuff that's so central to their identity if they haven't you know willingly put themselves forward or if you haven't got loads and loads of experience I think thirdly I mean this was unsolvable really would have been good to have external experienced teachers because you know often the person teaching mindfulness might also be the person teaching English or PE or whatever and I think that that there's a problem with the message that they're giving. Not only are they not very experienced, but they're also, you know, there's other relationships that young people have with that person, which I think get in the way. And I think the final thing I think is that, I mean, the, I suppose just echoing again, the engagement issue seems critical. So I think the thing to do with young people is to sort of include things that you think are helpful kind of by the back door so to get them to do other activities like you know sleep training or something like that things we know are really good for mental health but not direct not not tackling mental health head-on but sort of going doing behavioral interventions around lifestyle and other things or discussions around personal values things things that are not directly trying to and teach them a set of skills for mental health because I think that, that, they, that they, they, they really seem to bulk at that a bit. So this idea of 
just just finding all, all the things we know impact on mental health in terms of the way you might structure your life let's do let's do classes and training around those perhaps rather than mental health itself but i mean these are just these are just thoughts really um we haven't really got any evidence that any of those would have made any difference they're just our musings on what what we could have done differently in terms of the future i think um it's difficult to know where to go with the schools program because the big unanswered question is if we had very well trained teachers would we get a different result but it feels almost impossible to figure a trial of that magnitude with, with, with well-trained teachers um or if we if we if we if we um had more engaged young people but again it goes back to all those questions about how would you do that so i think the most likely thing is to there's there's some hints in the findings about um mindfulness might be better for certain groups of people versus others within the younger population so i think some research trying to see if those hints actually rep what we would call replicate in larger studies or whether they were just like for, you know go like sound three or fingers when you try and pin them down it's probably where we're realistically going to go and it's a you know it's a function of funding this this project was cost seven million pounds I mean, and we we've essentially got our two our two numbers different between two sets of schools that's what you end up with and each time if you need that kind of money it's very very hard to get persuade funders to give it to you so that's really what you're up against as a researcher so of course we could generate lots of interesting studies but the key thing is you know who's going to pay for them and, and it's very hard to get money we, we were amazed to get seven million pounds to study mindfulness so i can't i can't imagine that would happen again Thanks, Tim. And that, that kind of links to another question, and, and they're coming in thick and fast. So I just wanted to say they're all really interesting. We may not have time to go through all of them. Um, but one of them is around funding. And is, and is there a sense now as a result of the myriad results, and this may not be possible to, to say, do you see any potentially any impact of that having on things like further research in this field, or government policy or anything like that is there a sense of that yet yeah well i think i think it will stop there was i think the i would say the enthusiasm ran slightly ahead of the evidence so i think it it would definitely put a hold on rolling out mindfulness in schools you know as a universal intervention but the big the big gap is we as i said we've got really good evidence in adults of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for people with depression but we've never examined that in younger people. So I feel like there's really important applications of mindfulness in the younger population that you know, require research. Is MBCT a good depression prevention in cl very clinically vulnerable groups? We, we have no idea about that. So in that sense, I think all those things are very fundable. So I don't think it will have, I don't think it will have put people funders off funding those kinds of questions but I think it might be more difficult to get funding to do mindfulness a big mindfulness in schools trial until we really have a sense of what we what we would need to do differently thank you 
there's a, there's a really interesting question that's kind of linked to this, which is, so this is from Rory. My adolescent children dislike PSHE lessons. So for those of you who don't know what PSHE is, it's sort of a, a personal health social education program um, in schools. Regardless of their content, they don't think the teachers are credible in delivering the content. Are you aware of any universal health interventions in PHSE class settings that have been effective? I guess it's like a comparison with what was being done with Myriad. Yeah, so the, so the problem is that they don't really trial these things, yeah? <laughs> so they introduce them and then they say, well, everyone seems a bit better than before we introduced them. It's like, well, yeah, but that might just be because times have changed in the last two years and people are more generally aware of mental health than they were two years ago because of media or whatever. So there's very there's very few large scale studies. Um, I mean, there are some, and we found this with the mindfulness that our initial trial, which was you know hundreds and hundreds of young people, was actually very encouraging. There's no way we would have got you know millions of pounds without a good pilot trial, if you like. And but most of the trials are of that nature; they're much smaller. And um, these kind of large definitive trials, as they would be called. In other words, the idea is that they cost so much money, but they give you a definitive answer. Whereas a lot of science is based on replication of many studies. This is like you do one shot, it costs a lot, but you definitively know this is the answer to that question. There's very few definitive trials. Um, but universal PSHE, I guess, yeah, I came out of it wondering if any universal intervention is really going to be help, helpful. I, I mean, I don't know if that's an empirical question, but that was my feeling. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, lots to ponder on that one. Um, there's a, there's a, a really interesting question here, which is about younger age groups. So have there been studies where mindfulness has been introduced at a preschool age? and continued, which indicates a more significant engagement throughout the school, and also presumably the culture of the school impact. Um, yeah, so there are protocols for mindfulness in primary schools. Um, I don't really know very much about the research. I know that I know the protocols exist. I don't know what the research evidence for them would be. Um, <clears throat> there's certainly no large trials of the kind we do in secondary schools, but um, there's definitely that I can't really say much more because it's been exactly on my expertise or yeah. on my knowledge at least. Yeah, but, but one to ponder perhaps if we're talking about cynical teenagers then maybe who knows younger younger children might be more engaged. I think the challenge is really when you're when you're trying to think about mental health prevention you know, the, the modal time of onset is in adolescence. Um, and so obviously adolescents are transitioning from the family as their unit of being grounded as a person to their peer group. And that's an incredibly sensitive time because the peer group is often very volatile and they're trying to establish their own sense of identity. Mm -hmm. And that, that seemed to us the period you'd really want to give them a set of skills where they could just keep an eye on the bigger picture, step back, not, not, not. The sorts of things that a very kind of uh, solid mindfulness program could, could help with. 
Um, so yeah, that that's so one could imagine that in younger age groups, mindfulness training would have some benefits, but whether it would have that mental uh, preventative impact is less clear because I think there's you know there's not so much for young not so much going on in younger children in terms of that vulnerability as we see from the you know the age of onset yeah yeah although is it so this is um, my own question here really is there a is there an argument for establishing um practice and the skills that you get in advance of that happening or do you think by the time you get to adolescence that the effect might have worn off through having had earlier intervention yeah i th i i completely i completely agree if if there was sort of some if it was something like you know physical exercise <laughs> but it requires a certain mm. set of cognitive abilities in order to to really do the exercises which don't really develop until puberty and, and yeah. the, the the ability to you know step back and understand or examine the contents of your own mind and contemplate what others think of you and I think it also requires that the, co the content to be there to deal with yeah. if, if there's no content and you don't actually have the cognitive capacity to examine that content from a slightly detached perspective mm. and I think what you're ending up doing is sort of lower level exercises which might, might as I said be, be still be useful but I'm, I still think you'd end up having to do these do these more complex things um, yeah. for the first time when young people have the the cognitive development to do them but yeah. it's possible that you know that there would be a nice run-up if you'd if it had been part and parcel of what you'd always done yeah um i mean i mean my view would be in an ideal world there'd be you know teachers in schools whose job is to help young people develop you know all of these skills and it's that they're actually that's actually what the teacher does it's not the maths teacher who runs the PSHE sessions they're it's treated the same as all other school subjects this is about you know what constitutes a life well lived and how you can look after yourself and it, it and I know that's the aim of PSHE but I feel a lot of schools just pay lip service to it really it's not it's squeezed in it's the first thing that gets cut you know I think even sometimes the the teachers seem less enthusiastic about it and it's so it's no wonder that the children can't be bothered with it so I, I i mean i can't speak for all schools but that certainly the schools my kids went to it was it was not given very much priority yeah it was like we have to do this but you know <laughs> no one really wants to <laughs> and i feel like that's that's um, that, that's that, that that sort of thing with help which i think is what you're getting at yeah kind of yeah um another question that's come in is around qualitative data was there any qualitative data uh, included in the myriad study so in the development of the study and in the pilot trial yes but it was just too <clears throat> it's just not possible for eight thousand young people so um we, we so we had interviews with young people about the best way to collect the data and so on um, but not around um, what they felt the impact of the mindfulness 
was we only did that in our pilot trial but the mindfulness in schools program has you know drawn heavily on you know narrative accounts of the experience um, in developing the intervention so it's not as if the intervention has not been informed by rich qualitative data but we we didn't we didn't analyze the impact of the intervention using qualitative data which of course would have been fantastic but it's just not possible um, and i think that's another point worth making actually so we chose three robust outcome measures of risk of mental health but of course it's possible if we'd assessed other things for example sat down and interviewed every one of the eight thousand kids and looked at the nature of what they were saying that mindfulness would have turned out to be very beneficial yeah. we just don't know you can you only know the things you've measured yeah um, the low engagement and the kind of the questionnaire based qualitative data if you like like how much did you enjoy it how much would you recommend it to a friend do you think it helped you that as i said they were pretty lukewarm on all of those things mm -hmm. but it may be that there were other things that it benefited that yeah. we uh, just didn't measure yeah and, and that kind of links to another question that's come in actually so David here says we have a good deal of anecdotal evidence that young people will come back to mindfulness later in life having perhaps spent lessons swinging on their chair um so is there a sense maybe that that you know if you were to measure outcomes later on and maybe a different kind of measure that you would see slightly different results yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So if we think of a class of 25 kids, it costs £70 per child to, to mindfulness. That includes all the training of the teachers and everything. So obviously that cost would go down at time. So, I mean, I can't really do the maths, but say like just, just short of a couple of thousand pounds maybe for a class. And if one child went back to mindfulness later and that prevented them from having one episode of depression at any point in their life, that whole class would pay for itself because it costs a lot of money to society. Yeah. Even a single episode of depression because people go off work and, and it has all sorts of ramifications. So in order for it to benefit, it doesn't have to be in the one year after the trial. It could be 20 years later someone being more likely to, to re-engage and then that having an effect on mental health prevention then and of course we have no idea about those things but I think the point I'm making is the effect would not have to be big for it to really be worth doing because it's not doing any harm mostly I mean we found some indications that some children with high levels of depression weren't doing quite so well afterwards as the control scores but they, they, they were very small effects and they didn't sustain so it's not really doing any harm. Um, and there might be these benefits that, we, like I said, we haven't measured, which could, could map forward many years down the line. And they wouldn't have to be paid. Right. <laughs> this, is so, this is so interesting. So I know we're, we're kind of coming towards the end slowly of, of our session. I'm just trying to pick out a few choice questions that remain. And again, I'm sorry if I don't manage to ask all of them. Um, 
so there's there's some questions around the types of practices that were done as part of the .b program. I know what's in the .b program, but I'm going to let you answer, and then if you if you if you're not sure, then I can maybe I can maybe step in. But questions around things like whether loving kindness meditations, compassion practices, those sorts of things in the program. I'm just wondering whether those would have had an impact or. Yeah, so the, like you said, there's a variety of practices, um, some of which definitely follow follow those themes. They wouldn't be a fully fledged loving kindness med meditation as, as you might be familiar with. But I mean, anecdotally, the ones that young people said found most useful when we did our qualitative work in preparation were, the, were essentially the stopping and breathing and the... Um, the sleep-based practices um, which they were doing and also they're just grounding yourself on your chair so they seemed much more interested in the simpler practices compared mm -hmm. to those the sorts of ones you, you've just mentioned but maybe yeah maybe Claire you've got a, a, a better idea of, of how those relate to the broader spectrum of practices that the mindfulness community would engage in which I might be less familiar with but certainly the young people quite liked the direct, very directed practices at uh, aimed at particular points of the day or particular situations mm. which they could use and um, that's mm. what that's what we got out whether that was true in the trial I don't know but certainly in our, <laughs> our pilot work I was yeah I, 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 yeah I mean that's my understanding as well and um and maybe maybe when the mist session happens in the new year we we can explore it further but yeah short practices that can be introduced into everyday life and yeah. those moments before you're you know you're about to stand up in assembly and have to speak to the whole school or you know your friend collapses outside a nightclub and <laughs> those sorts of things are the ones where they really go yeah I use it um yeah and so maybe one last question um so Caroline has asked this is a really interesting one actually has there been any attempt made to quantify or observe the ripple effect within peer groups so for example if a leader of a peer group um, adopts a practice do others follow are you aware of anything like that no but I, when i was saying about you know would i do things differently so we know from anti-bullying programs for example if they're led by teachers they're much less effective than if they're led by older pupils and so i think the notion of the sort of respected older pupils in a school leading any attempts at behavioral change or mental health prevention would be a massive step in the right direction so it's a kind of related idea that if you can get respected members of the peer community involved i think you are likely to get far greater impact there's a natural barrier between teachers and students which is very very hard to get past really because the teacher has to have so many roles they're you know they're your mindfulness teacher but they're also the person responsible for your discipline and you know, it's very very difficult to, to balance those things especially if you're new to you know le learning some of these skills so i think there's a massive a massive opportunity there to involve older members of the peer group in, in delivering and as yeah. i said maybe interventions that aren't so much directly targeted at mental health but targeted at things like sleep or you know not taking drugs or anti-bullying things mm -hmm. that we know are really really beneficial but much much more discreet 
yeah. in that sense. Yeah. Yes. But that's the only work I know of. I don't. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I'm I'm aware we're about to come to the end of our hour. Um, so many more questions to ask. And, Sorry. I and probably no, should have had briefer answers. Sorry. I know, but they're so been so incredibly helpful. Thank you so so much. And and you know your second time here with just blasting you with questions and um and out of the out of the blue kind of demands on on your knowledge. But um it's been incredibly helpful. Thank you so so much, Tim. Um, and to all of you for your really great questions um, and and also just just a just a sense of, you know, this is an ongoing debate, isn't it? So learning all the time um, and the key. I think learning comes from those um, as, as an educationist, learning comes from those surprises that we get perhaps in in the research or the kind of exploration we do so um a huge thanks to you tim and to everybody who's come here tonight including the lovely omf team who've been supporting um little bits of uh, a reminder we, we've got um another keynote happening at the beginning of december um for those of you who don't know we're, we're running daily practice sessions for free 7 till 7 30 p.m monday to friday apart from first Wednesday of the month and last Friday of the month when we have our social events evening uh, and we are about to introduce daytime practice sessions as well so uh, 1 till 1.30 p.m UK time which hopefully will hit other time zones as well so um, if you are interested in having a little half hour of pause in your day to to do some practice you'd be very welcome to join us from the 14th of November on Monday to Friday. Um, so yeah, enough information from me. Thank you again, Tim. Thank you so, so much. I'm going to um, allow everybody to unmute now and in our traditional way to say goodbye in their own way. Lovely to see you all. And um, yeah, and hopefully see, me, see you again soon. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you, Claire. Bye. Thanks a lot. Thank Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Linda.